Today, we're speaking with Comptroller Susana Mendoza. She's the state's chief fiscal officer who is seeking approval from voters for the third time at the statewide level. I'm Jerry Nowicki, and this is Capital Cast. Susana Mendoza spent 10 years in the General Assembly from 2001 to 2011 as a member of the House of Representatives. She left that post to become city clerk in Chicago, serving in that position until 2016, when she was elected comptroller to fulfill the rest of late Republican Judy Barr Topinka's term. She was seated about 500 days into a state budget impasse between Republican Bruce Rauner and Democrats in the General Assembly, and was thrust into a very visible role as the state's most prominent statewide elected foil to Rauner. In 2016, she beat Rauner's hand-picked Comptroller Leslie Munger by about five percentage points, then cruised to a 12-point victory in 2018. She now seeks a second full term at the office, touting the state's fiscal growth, elimination of a bill backlog, and several credit upgrades. Her challenger is McHenry County Auditor Shannon Teresi, a newcomer to statewide politics who has heavily focused on corruption within the Democratic Party. An interview with Teresi is featured in another episode of Capital Cast, which you can find at the same place you're listening to this one. These are the latest in a series of interviews we're conducting ahead of November 8th general election. The conversation you're about to hear includes Capital News Illinois reporter Peter Hancock, and you can find the story he wrote about the race at our website, capitalnewsillinois.com. So here is our conversation with Comptroller Mendoza. All right. Well, we'll start it off. Thank you for being here. Um, we appreciate your time, as always. Uh, so we'll start it off. Um, why? I, th- I think you've been in office since 2017 for a partial term. So why have you earned a second full one? So, yeah, I guess I've been in since December of 2016. Um, every day counted, let me tell you, because I walked in uh, 500 plus days into the budget impasse, the, the worst fiscal crisis in the history of the state of Illinois. And so I probably signed up for the toughest job in government at that time. Uh, you'll recall we basically had, I wouldn't say an absentee governor, but we had a governor who was actively destroying the state's finances and decimating the state's social safety network. And, um, but it was terrible. I mean, it was a very difficult position to walk into. 736 days, which ended up being that the state went without a budget. And unfortunately, during that time, the backlog of unpaid bills, which really is a reflection of the suffering that was being felt by the vendor community and the folks who required social services and critical healthcare services from the state, uh, we're suffering. So the bigger that backlog went, also it directly correlated to the the worse the suffering was for the people of the state of Illinois. Now, having said that, if you were a vendor with the state of Illinois um, and I was the controller, you can rest assured that our phone was ringing off the hook with people really begging for their money, money that they deserve to get in a timely fashion for services that were properly rendered and dutifully rendered to the state of Illinois. Yet the average delay in bill payments when I walked into the controller's office in December of 2016 was an average of 210 business days. That's nine and a half months in real people time. And so I'm just trying to paint the picture here, put it in context of what I walked into. It ended up being an almost $17 billion uh, backlog of unpaid bills. 
an average bill payment delay of 210 days. Um, and the two years before I became controller, the state of Illinois under Governor Rauner had earned eight consecutive credit downgrades during the best economic bull market of our lifetime. It really should have been criminal. Unfortunately, it was not. But to get eight consecutive credit downgrades during the best of economic times is really the worst kind of negligence. So that's what I signed up to clean up. And I'm very proud to say as to the why should I get reelected that I know that in the history of our state, we have never had a controller who's had to navigate the state through the type of crisis, the fiscal crisis that I have. And we've certainly never had someone who's built up the experience of being an absolutely battle-tested, proven, experienced leader um, who's been able to navigate the state successfully through not just one, the worst crisis in our history, which was the Rauner era, that two-year budget impasse, but followed back to back by a global pandemic, which I think someone who had not had the level of experience that I had acquired during that 736-day budget impasse would have probably completely not been put on their heels, but on their butt. And so I felt that I, to me, the, the global pandemic, it was scary in the sense of what it would do from a healthcare perspective. And here in my family, we were not spared. My brother almost died from it. He caught COVID before the vaccines were available as a Chicago police officer and spent 72 days hospitalized, lost both his kidneys, uh, had five strokes, really is uh, an example of what can happen if you have a bad outcome. And, and are unvaccinated, unprotected. But um, so I saw it very up close and personal, but it scared me from that perspective, a healthcare perspective, but it never scared me. I never skipped a beat in terms of from a financial perspective, because if I could get our state through uh, and, and start to recover from a 736 day budget impasse, um, there was nothing that was really gonna scare me from a financial perspective. and. Uh, the facts are the facts that on my watch, Illinois has gone from before me eight consecutive credit downgrades to its first credit upgrades for a total of not one, two, three, four, or five, but now six full credit upgrades. By the way, in the middle of a global pandemic, those six upgrades came within a year of each other. And they're the first that we have ever seen in the last 20 years, over 20 years of consecutive downgrades until um, I took over as controller and I promised to deliver a credit upgrade, but we've now, I've helped to deliver six and I'm very proud of that. I've also paid down, eliminated the backlog of unpaid bills that when I first ran for office and said that I would tackle that, I don't really think there were too many people who believed that that was possible. I think people thought it would be impossible. The things you'd hear at the time that I'd hear were things like Illinois can never recover. Uh, it's a, it's a, case of futility. Um, if you're smart, you'll invest in U-Haul. Those were kind of the terms that were being floated around at the time. And I always told people never give up on Illinois. I'm never gonna give up on Illinois. And I know, I know what I'm capable of doing if I'm given the opportunity. So when people say something is impossible to me, all that does is fire me up and it makes me prove them wrong. And I've done exactly that as controller. That $16.7 billion backlog, it's gone. We don't have a backlog anymore. We now have a working accounts payable that you know is anywhere between two and three billion dollars um, on average, and that is just the normal cost of operating government on a day-to-day -day perspective. Uh, we've gone from having a 210-day average delay on paying the bills 
to what today my oldest bill in the controller's office is only a whopping seven days old. Our average is about 10 days right now, which is well under a 30-day business cycle, uh, payment cycle, like in the private sector. And you know, when people say, so let's talk about the private sector, you hear people say all the time, oh, the government should run like a business. Well, I say, let's run it better than a business. That's what I've proven we can do since I've been your controller, uh, delivering the fastest vendor payment cycle in decades to the state of Illinois. And so we've been open for business for more than a year. And uh, I say that because that bill backlog was paid down about a year ago, a little over than that, over than a year ago, down to under $3 billion before a single penny of the federal ARPA stimulus dollars made their way into Illinois. And so that that's a key fact because I know there's a lot of concern about what happens when federal money dries up. But remember, the only reason we needed federal money was because COVID hit. And in the absence of COVID, well, we wouldn't need those extra dollars that did in fact go towards COVID related expenses, but not a penny of them had been used to pay down the bill backlog because I'd already done that over six years of absolute strategic financial management and, and diligent targeting of which bills we'd pay first to be able to stretch their value and tackle that bill backlog as quickly as possible. So I think I've given you probably the highlights. At the end of the day, I said a lot, but let me just sum it down to eight credit downgrades before me, six credit upgrades since me. A 210 day, that's nine and a half month delay in paying bills before me, a 10 day average bill payment cycle since I've been controller. And um, a $16.7 billion backlog of unpaid bills to an elimination of the backlog and now an active working accounts payable of about $2 billion. That is nothing short of remarkable. And I'm very proud that the people of Illinois trusted me not just once, but twice by electing me twice to this position. And I think I've more than earned uh, uh, their trust and hope, hopefully, more importantly, their vote here going into this next re-election cycle. I noticed you measure the backlog by the number of days that invoices have been sitting in your office. Um, there has, I've heard grumbling here and there, maybe you can talk about it, that state agencies were known to kind of slow walk their invoices to your office. Mm -hmm. So the length of time that a vendor has to wait to get paid is actually a little bit longer uh, than uh, what would appear just by your measurement. And so I'm wondering, is that still going on? Are agencies uh, slow walking the- that, that is an awesome question. And thank you for asking it because it, it reminds me to talk to you about the largest transparency reform that I did in the controller's office, which has really shifted that narrative. And that was the Debt Transparency Act. So the first week that I became controller, I got a call from Representative Mike Eunice. He was a Republican in the House of Representatives. This was back in, uh, December of 2016. And so he reached out to me and he um, he told me that he had a nursing home provider who was on the verge of leaving Illinois because they hadn't been paid in over six months and they were about to miss their first payroll. And you know, once you miss your first payroll, that's the beginning of the end. And so um, he, I said, well, how much do we owe them? And he said, um, $21 million. And I was like, wow, that's just a huge amount of money. At the time, we had like no money in our reserves, our emergency um, rainy day fund. We had like less than $60,000, I think at the time maybe. And so in any event, um, I knew that we weren't gonna have the ability to pay them $21 million. 
again, it was my first week, but I, I knew enough to know that. And so I said, let me see what we've got in our system for them and how much would you need for payroll? And that was about a million bucks at the time. So I thought, well, let's see if we can at least help them with their payroll, but I know I don't have the 2.1. So I look in our system and guess what? There's not, uh, I'm sorry, there's not 21 million, there's 2.1 million. So they were saying we owed them 21 million, but I could only see 2.1 million. And so I thought for a second, well, maybe this is just a loss in translation and they were off by a decimal point. But I called back the representative and I said, good news, it's not 21 million, it's only 2.1 million. I still don't have the 2.1, but we're gonna help you with your payroll so that your constituent doesn't you know, lose their business here. And so he got back to me, he said, well, thanks so much, but I think you're wrong. I think it is 21 million. So the obvious question, and this goes to your question, is where is the rest of it? Where's the 19 million? And this is when I found out that the state agencies were holding on to people's invoices for a long, long time. And how long? I had no idea because I couldn't see them, which is completely asinine because I'm the state's chief fiscal officer. If there's one person in the state of Illinois who should know what's being charged to the state's accounts, it's the, it's the controller for the state of Illinois. And so it was beyond me that all the people that served before me were okay with playing by these archaic rules where the controller would only see a report from the state agencies as to how many liabilities they were sitting on once a year in the month of October. And it was only current as of June 30th of that year. So by the time the controller would even see the report of what the liabilities were, they were already 90 days um, you know, old, this report, which as you now know, I'm sure because you've covered it a million times, after 90 days of a bill sitting unpaid, it starts to accrue late payment interest penalties. And you know, Governor Rauner in just two years, the two years before me, had racked up $1.104 billion worth of late payment interest penalties because the state was a deadbeat on his watch. And so this is real money that we're talking about that essentially the state set on fire instead of putting it to good use. And I needed to change that. So that's when I introduced this legislation, uh, which we call the Debt Transparency Act. It became law. We had to override Governor Rauner's veto because he it was not in his best interest, I guess, that we'd be able to tell the story about how much deficit spending was actually occurring, not just on his watch, but honestly, under every governor's watch before him, but no governor had deficit spent more than the Republican governor who pretended that he was a fiscal steward. So, you know, this was a really massive monumental transparency reform, and it allows me as controller to now get monthly updates instead of yearly updates and not just of the total of the liabilities outstanding at each agency, but they have to break it down for me. And they have to break it down by how many invoices are they sitting on, which when they send them to us become vouchers. How old are they? I wanna know, are they zero to 30 days old? 30 to 60, 60 to 90. If they're over 90 days old, I need to know how much older they are and what the estimated late payment interest penalties are that are associated with those debts. And so for the first time in ever, the controller can now have a much better picture of who's sitting on what. And the result of that transparency actually means massive accountability that we never had. Because to your point, these agencies, some of them would hold on to bills for almost a year. 
There was a day in April when I went to sleep thinking that the bill backlog was about 13 billion. And I woke up the next morning and it was 14 billion. A whole billion dollars more had been sent to the controller's office that were about 11 months old. So think about that. Someone's waiting to be paid by the state of Illinois for 11 months and you're the controller and you're trying to cash manage and triage during a budget impasse. And I get a billion dollars worth of bills that people have been waiting a year to get paid. Those became emergency payments that had to go out the door. So there's just, it was a complete disaster. And it wasn't until I got there and passed the Debt Transparency Act that we were able to clean that up. And now agencies are disincentivized from holding on to those bills for a long time because they look like they're being irresponsible. And so now you'll actually see that it's rare to find an agency holding on to a bill for longer than let's say 60 days. I mean, because we'll know that they're doing that. And once it gets close to that 90 days, it starts to incur late payment interest penalties of which we don't wanna pay a single penny of those. So things have gotten much, much better. I'm able to cash manage and debt manage so much better. And again, it's really just unfortunate that it took so long to change the legislation to, to make it transparent and accountable, but that's where we're at. And I'm very proud that we unanimously override Governor Rauner's veto of my legislation. And by the way, that's the first time that a sitting governor gets overridden unanimously in the House of Representatives. And we did almost unanimously override it in the Senate. So thanks to those overrides, it became law and the rest is history. Okay, and another thing the state did to deal uh, with those vendors out there who were owed money uh, was they authorized investment companies to buy up their debt. Uh, and then the investment companies would presumably get the 1% per month. Uh, you had made a decision a couple of years ago to go ahead and pay the principal that was owed, but not necessarily the interest. How much of that interest uh, that's owed to uh, those investment firms. How much of that is still out there? So I don't think it's a lot. I can get you that number, Peter, because I don't know it off the top of my head. But I will tell you that we actually um, worked out a, a deal with some of those entities that we would pay them the principal, but they would have to forgive us from paying them the interest. And so that was a, a really massive savings, I would say, for taxpayers, because anytime we have to pay interest, it's like setting taxpayer dollars on fire, and I hate to do it. And so um, we're not talking about the third party lenders here. I'm talking about the actual like big corporations who are originally being fast tracked with payments. These are the same guys that could afford to wait a little bit longer to get paid while you had mom and pop businesses or social service providers that were holding on by a thread. Many of them didn't make it, right? But they were the ones that were being told to wait for their money. And so um, some of these guys, we we went ahead and negotiated where we'll, we'll get the money out to them, we'll prioritize it, but in exchange for not having to pay those late payment interest penalties. And there's very little left still, even for those third, for the PPP. I mean, I mean, you might be thinking about the VPP folks. Is that what your question's about the vendor payment program? No, no, no. These were um, large investment companies that would, I, I guess they would pay what the vendor 90%. Yeah, that's the vendor program. payment program, right? Yeah, so yeah. there's still there's still some of that out there, but it's not much. I'll get you the exact number. Um, but what I'd like to do is see a phase out of that program. I mean, I really just believe that it should never be necessary again. Hopefully we will never ever be in a situation where we need to rely on these third party lenders because that's what those investment companies are. They made a huge amount of profit on the state's dysfunction 
uh, because they would they would keep for the most part the way it worked is they would keep the 12% interest and they would front let's say 90% of the uh, the money that that the the actual provider was supposed to be getting they'd give them 90% on a timely basis because the state was let's say nine months behind right and these providers said well I'd rather have 90% than wait a year to get paid by the state and then they sometimes they'd get their extra 10% uh, once these folks collected their interest. And sometimes they'd keep that too. So it really was depending on how they structured their contract. But my point is it was kind of like a, a legalized form of predatory lending. And um, I think it's unfortunate that that was allowed in the state of Illinois. Uh, the, the bad news is it was supposed to be set up as a guardrail so that the state would never be so late on paying its bills that it would be a massive disincentive to go over the 90 day mark. But instead of like seeing is it a guardrail, uh, under the Ronner administration, they decided to just go ahead and plow through that guardrail and let this, these third party lenders just make billions of dollars off of this dysfunction. And that's just not right. So I'd like to see that program gone. We don't need it right now because like I said, we're paying our bills faster than we have in decades. And there's no need for any provider who used to use them uh, to be using them today. So you use the term uh, deficit spending uh, with Governor Rauner, and I think for, for our listeners, they might not understand that during the impasse, uh, money was being spent. It wasn't a year without a budget, or, or, or it, was, it wasn't a year without the state spending money despite them not having a budget. So can you characterize briefly to what extent, I think the term autopilot you've used to describe uh, how the state's money was going out when you took office? Sure. Well, let me just describe what I mean by deficit spending, right? So every year when a budget is done, um, each agency gets X amount of dollars allocated to them to be spent in that year's budget. Anything above and beyond what the legislature approved would be considered deficit spending. Now, it's a unique situation with Governor Rauner because the entire time that he was there for those first two years before I became controller, he had never introduced a budget which means that there was no legal authority for the controller to pay the state's bills through what is known as the legal appropriation process. So at the very bare minimum, if you're not gonna have a budget, they should not have gone over what was a legal budget from the year before, right? So that would have been a good marker if you're the governor to say, well, this is what was appropriated the year before me. We definitely don't wanna spend beyond that. Uh, But these guys, like for example, when I got my first report of what the liabilities were. I I don't remember the exact number, but I want to say the Department of Corrections in October when I got the report that was again only current since June 30th was well over $400 million above and beyond the prior year's budget. So that's deficit spending and the controller because I had no visibility on it. I couldn't throw up a red flag and say, hey, you guys have already burned through 80% of what was spent in last year's budget and you're only six months into the year. Right. And so this is why this transparency is so important. Now, um, from a to, to your the other half of your question, so the first part was what's the deficit spending, and then the other one was what was on autopilot. Without a budget, uh, I don't have the legal authority to pay bills as controller. The budget is what gives me the legal appropriation authority. And so, even though I'd love to pay all these companies what I know that they expect to be paid for the services that they were still rendering, even though the state didn't actually have a budget in place, 
the way the state was operating, you used the word autopilot. I think that's a, a good way of saying it because the only bills that could get paid at that time were bills that were delayed from a prior legitimate budget that had passed and maybe those bills were just running late because as we now know, agencies used to sit on bills and delay sending them to the controller. So the only bills that I could legally pay were bills that were still outstanding from a prior authorized budget. But all the other bills, close to 90% of the bills that were being paid at that time were because of court order. So someone would sue the state of Illinois and say, hey, you guys haven't paid me in you know nine months. We're gonna go broke. Uh, certainly non-for-profits or Medicaid is a perfect example. Medicaid had to sue, Medicaid providers sued the state of Illinois and said, this is a vulnerable population that they need to be paid. And I'm glad they sued the state of Illinois because yes, they should have been paid. And so once we would lose those lawsuits, then by court order, I would have to pay those bills. And that was the only way that these folks were getting paid. The courts essentially took over the job that should have been the responsibility of the legislature and the governor in crafting and passing budgets. So that's what was happening during that 736 day budget impasse. The only way people were getting paid was if they had the wherewithal or the resources to go to court, take on the state of Illinois and win. But as you can imagine, not a lot of people or entities had that ability. So most people just went without getting paid for an obscene amount of time. And that's what I had to manage our state through. It was kind of like, for me, it was like being Jimmy Stewart and It's a Wonderful Life. Now, I don't know if your podcast folks are old enough to remember that movie or have seen it even. I think it's like a movie for all ages, no matter what generation you're in. But if you've seen it, it's like, you know, Jimmy Stewart in his role being like, I know, I know this is your money. I know you, you need it. I wish I could give it to you, but we don't have it. How much can I give you today so you could survive another two weeks? That's what it was like to be me as controller during the budget impasse and for probably a year and a half after as we were trying hard to recover. So we wanted to give you a little bit of time to uh, sort of quickly address some of the things your opponent has said. Uh, one of the frequent um, criticisms she makes is uh, you were sort of got your start in the Danny Salis uh, uh, operation with you were close with Speaker Madigan, who's been indicted as well, and then uh, your affiliations with Supreme Court Justice Ann Burke, whose husband Ed has been indicted. So it's just a, a point she's made several times about you. How do you respond to it? Well, clearly she has to go straight into the gutter, and I mean, I it's just so absurd, frankly, and I she cannot critique my record as much as she pretends to try to and just literally make stuff up every chance she gets her campaign is filled with vitriol and misinformation um totally absurd that i got my political start with danny solis and um i'm sure if i were to dig deep i'd find a whole bunch of people that she's friends with or has known and if i tried to play the same muddy her up by association game i'm sure she would not come out clean but i have been fully focused on just doing my job and doing it better than anyone has ever done it in the controller's office and i think that the results that i have delivered and really what for contextually speaking, is an insanely short amount of time. I, I couldn't be prouder of my role in the being really the chief architect of Illinois financial turnaround, the role of my staff that I get the privilege and the honor of leading. 
um, who completely buy into the vision that I have set for the controller's office. And the proof of that is the results that we've been able to deliver. And, you know, David Axelrod, who I think has a pretty good reputation out there, I think one of the best compliments I ever got was that he told me one day that, you know, recognizing what I've had to lead our state through during the two back-to-back -back fiscal crises and the results that I've delivered, he said to me that there's no certificate for that, but if there was one, I'd, be, I'd have an advanced PhD in crisis management, you know? And that I'm gonna take as a major compliment because it's really, I don't think people care about the nastiness of politics and they don't wanna hear about all the mean things that people can put out of their mouths. They wanna hear what you're gonna be able to do to make their lives better. What you're gonna be able to do if they give you their trust, their vote and their, the responsibility that is such an important responsibility, in this case, being controller for the state of Illinois, especially during times of crisis. This is not for beginners. It's not for novices. I bring in insanely long experience um, of being a legislator, of being executive manager of the, of the largest city in Illinois, uh, the city of Chicago, as the city clerk, doing really massive modernizations there that have helped save money and provide better service, understanding how to navigate the legislative process, which is something my opponent has no clue about, and, um, and really understanding that people like someone who gets stuff done. And I think you're going to be hard pressed to find anyone who has a better track record in any position that I've held in during those times that I've held them. And so I'm very, very proud of the work that I've done for the state of Illinois. I think my record speaks for itself. And I want to focus on all the positive things that I've done for Illinois and I want to continue to do for them. And my opponent, well, she can keep focusing on all the negative. I think people have had enough of that. And um, I'm happy to put my work experience and deliverables up against hers or anybody else's any day. Well, one of the other things she brings up is this Auditor General report that came out a few months ago. Uh, it, it was an audit of the Treasurer's Office, actually. Right. Uh, but it talks about there was a $1.6 billion discrepancy apparently caused by state agencies submitting uh, receipts to you twice and getting them credited twice. And then the treasurer's office was trying to reconcile that. Can you talk about how did that happen? Uh, yeah, for sure. And, and number one, let me just say, it's just bless her heart. I mean, you would think that someone who's running for controller would know the difference, right? Between the treasurer's office and the controller's office. Especially, but your office is mentioned in that report. Well, it's mentioned, but it's not an audit about my office. And she, of course, should know better because she's supposedly an auditor herself. But having said that, yeah, look, number one, let's start with the facts. Uh, this was an audit of the treasurer's office, not the controller's office. Uh, and no, the treasurer did not lose $1.6 billion, as she claims. She claims that I lost it, which is clearly just absurd. Uh, but no one lost $1.6 billion. What happened is that the treasurer, as you mentioned, his office uh, you know, noticed some preliminary working papers that had double counted to the tune of $1.6 billion, and they fixed it before it could even become a problem. There was no lost or misplaced money. There was zero harm done. And I've said this before, and we have spoken to the treasurer's office, and we've said that, you know, we're happy to, if they were to ask us to, assist them with 
you know, improving their internal process so that this draft reporting is consistent all the way through. But this is an error that was caught so early uh, that is not reflected and wouldn't have been in our state's financial statements that are prepared by my office. It really, I think, is just more of an issue of communication. And I think the Auditor General felt that the Treasurer's Office should be communicating more with the agencies and also with our office when it notices these RDTs. Um, that's a receipt deposit transmittal, in case you don't know what the acronym is. Sorry, I should not use acronyms. But the receipt deposit transmittals if they've been sent more than once, that there should be a better line of communication so that we're aware of it and they're aware of it. But let me give an example, since we're on this issue, of, of what this actually means in, in real time. So these the agencies send us the RDTs, right? These receipt deposit transmittals. And sometimes they send it more than once. So I'll give you an example. We may get hundreds of RTDs for the exact same amount of $1,000. So imagine that identifying every single duplicate from our end would actually be impossible. It's the agencies who need to reconcile their cash balances on a timely basis and identify any duplicate entries if they occur. Now, in this case, the treasurer's office noticed it and they told the agencies that they double sent the RDT. Where we get brought into the audit is that the treasurer said that they will work with our office to also better communicate with us so that in the event that that happens, the treasurer notices it and he'll notice it every single month. So this is never a problem when it comes to financial reporting. He notices it, what he does in the process in the past has been that he would then communicate that to the state agency and the state agency is supposed to correct it on their end. But the treasurer will always correct it on his end. And so the treasurer's office notices it, tells the agency that they double sent the RDT, but the treasurer's office doesn't necessarily notify us that there's a double entry because they've always just communicated to the state agency. So we're listed in this audit because the treasurer is saying that they'll also communicate better with us and we will, we've communicated with them that, sure, go ahead and let us know that you've had a double entry. But this is not something that we could fix, even if the treasurer wanted us, us to, because our job is to, to um, document the, the entry, right? It's not, there's, it's not actual money that has been passed. It's just a, that we're we are essentially documented that there's a double entry. We wouldn't know it's a double entry. Um, and it wouldn't even matter if it were at that point. That's something that gets resolved between the treasurer and the agency, but we're happy to be notified just so we can flag it and just make sure that at the end of the year um, or you know monthly really that the treasurer is following up with these agencies and not letting them sit on these double entries but just better communication something that happens that's why audits are important i would argue right because we always want to be able to continue to improve on internal controls but again the crux of the matter here for purposes of you know this interview is that i do kind of find it laughable that my opponent is trying to make a big deal out of an audit and a finding that really was not an audit about us. Could that whole situation maybe be a, uh, could we help avoid it by combining the offices of treasurer and comptroller? Well, I think Tom that Demmer that, has proposed. Sure, I think it's it's really just, let me just start by saying that if there's one person in Illinois that it is just amazing to me that this one person would be pushing for the consolidation of the treasurer and controller, it happens to be Representative Demmer. 
And uh, look, I have respect for Tom Demmer, but I think he's absolutely dead wrong on this issue. This is always one of these political talking points that people bring up around election time that you should um, consolidate the office of the controller and the treasurer. But oh my Lord, let me just give you a quick history lesson on why this is a bad idea. And far after I am gone as controller, I will still be sticking to the same uh, argument because it's the sound one. Number one, you've heard this like made up number of $12 million in savings if you consolidate the offices. It's a made up number. I challenge you to ask, you know, either Demer, uh, Representative Demer or anyone else who advocates for this to show you the math because it's not there. We don't have those that many duplicative, um, you know, duties. I mean, maybe you can get rid of a couple lawyers, a chief of staff, the elected person themselves but there's no way that you get to $12 million, not even close. But the reason we have these independent offices is an important one. That's because back in 1956, Orville Hodge, who did the combined job of, of treasurer, controller, and auditor, embezzled $6 million, which today would be the equivalent of about $59 million. And so uh, that was a big deal. And that's why in 1970, the, the legislature decided to split the duties to create strong internal controls between the different offices and never allow something like this to happen where the person who invests the money also has access to the checkbook. Now, having said that, if you think that can't happen again, and clearly Representative Demmer and others believe it can't, it just happened in his own hometown of Dixon, Illinois, not that long ago in 2012, when Rita Crundwell embezzled the equivalent today of what would be $69 million. I think it was 54 million in 2012 when she got caught. And so my point is, here's the fact, the two largest embezzlement schemes in the government, I should say the two largest government embezzlement schemes in the history of the United States of America, both happened in Illinois where the controller and the treasurer served, or those functions were held by the same person. Now, lastly, if that's not a strong enough argument, and I'm telling you that the 12 million is like not, it's just a made up number, honestly, it would cost us so much more to actually combine the offices because forget about what I think. The opinion that really matters here is what the credit rating agencies think. And they've already gone on the record saying that they see a, combining the offices as a credit negative because you would be losing serious internal controls, especially knowing the history of the state of Illinois, that they actually pay attention to this stuff. You talk to nine out of 10 people on the street, no one knows about Orville Hodge. They don't remember. They don't think about it in that context, but the credit rating agencies certainly do. And they wanna see more stronger internal controls, not less, stronger checks and balances, not less. And going credit negative because you do something that's really just a political play um, would cost us not thousands or millions, but potentially hundreds of millions of dollars in increased borrowing costs if we were to go credit negative. So anything that could even potentially diminish our credit in the slightest should be the opposite of what we should be doing. And that's why I think this is a moot point. I have the strongest argument. And I'm going to listen to the credit rating agencies say, not to mention that historically speaking, we've made the mistake not once, but twice in Illinois. We don't need to go for a three-peat. So that's it for our conversation with Comptroller Susana Mendoza. 
You can find more at CapitalNewsIllinois.com and more where you're listening to this podcast. As always, thank you for listening.